Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. On today's podcast, Susie Kuj, the wife of our missionary to South Sudan, Pastor Sabet Kuj, shares her amazing testimony of how she came to Christ out of unbelief and immorality and how God led her to a life of missionary work in the African bush. Here now is Susie with a message entitled, From Madam to Missionary. Alrighty, good evening. We're going to get started here. So we have a great turnout because most of you know we have a missionary speaker this Wednesday night. So it's my delight to reintroduce to you uh, Susie Kuj, all the way from South Sudan. Let's welcome her to... Thank you. Thank you. All right. Good evening, guys. It's really... A joy to be here. Um, as you can tell, I'm, I'm not a Californian girl. <laughs> I like to think I am, actually. I lived in San Diego for six years, but I'm UK. I was born in the UK, and um, I just want to pray before we start. Let's just uh, have a word of prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this evening, Lord, and I thank you for each person here, Lord. I thank you that you handpicked them and chose them to be here this evening, Lord, and We just ask you, Holy Spirit, to move in this place, move in our hearts and our minds, Lord. May my words be from you and not from me, Lord, and um, thank you for our testimonies, God. May they just be glorifying and lift you up and lift your name up, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, Sevet and I, um, you know, have been here almost a week in Santa Rosa. It's been really a joy to be here with the church and um, you know, coming all the way from Sudan, it took a long time to get here, actually. <laughs> Not didn't just drive up from San Diego. Uh, we took a plane from uh, Tanj to uh, Juba, which is in the capital of uh, South Sudan. We then took another plane uh, to Nairobi in Kenya. Then we took another plane to London and another plane to um, Los Angeles. And then we, we drove to San Diego, and then we drove all the way up here. So uh, it's a joy to be here, but as you can see, it's quite a journey. Um, I wanted to share with you, you know, about our work. The testimony is what God is doing in South Sudan and through our lives individually and um, as a team, Sabat and I are a team, um, but also what he did in my life to get me to that place is really... um, a story in itself. And, um, you know, when I first had my testimony, it was hard. It's a hard testimony to have. Um, and I remember God saying to me, don't be ashamed of your testimony because that I gave it to you for this purpose and this plan that I have for you. So I just encourage you, if you have a hard testimony like me, um, be bold with your testimony because the Lord Jesus wants to use it. Um, uh, you know, as I said, I'm not, I'm not from here. I grew up in the UK. I lived in the UK until I was 26 years old. So I'm just a couple of years ago. Uh, <laughs> um, and the one thing that I get asked a lot, my, the biggest question actually people ask me is, um, you know, how did you end up in Africa? Well, that starts with my story about how I worked at a church in San Diego, and then that confuses them completely. And they say, well, how did you end up in, in America? And that is my testimony. Um, I was living in England, hanging out, going to the gym, and I met a young man. He was working out in the gym, and uh, it was kind of cute. I started hanging out with him. And I enjoyed him. He was a lot of fun. I was not a Christian. I did not grow up in a Christian home. I um, was very much in the world, doing my own thing, had my own agenda, my own purpose and plan, and life um, was tough for me at that time. I met this guy. He looked like a lot of fun, and so I kind of started hanging out with him. He was American. And actually, he was was a Chippendale. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was throw that out at the beginning. <laughs> so we traveled all over Europe, and then he went back to America, and he invited me to come to the States, and so I went to Chicago and New York and ended up in L.A., and you know, my friends back home thought, gosh, you have this really glamorous lifestyle. But um, actually, it was really hard. You know, I, do, couldn't, I couldn't hold down a job. I didn't really have any money. I didn't really have any prospects. He wanted me to stay living with him in, um, in California and work illegally. And um, not because of moral reasons that I said no. I just knew that that was going to be really tough. And so I said, oh, this, I, I don't think I can do that. So I told him, you know, let's get married. Let's go to Vegas and get married because then I can work here and uh, have a life. And if I'm staying, I need to have a a better life than working illegally. So um, he said no. He was Jewish. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And... uh, he said, you know, no way. You know, kids come from, well, I mean, his parents knew what he did, but, um, you know, they always said he was a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, they were very, you know, against us ever marrying, and they kept telling him, you know, you've got to make sure you hold out for a nice Jewish girl. And I didn't fit that bill. So um, we, you know, I pressured him and said, look, you know, I'm going back when my visa expires to, to England. And, um, and then he said, okay, he said, you know what, let's, let's do it. So we went off to Vegas and got married. Now, we didn't tell my family, and we didn't tell his family. We lived kind of this secret um, marriage, married life. It wasn't a love affair, you know. I loved the idea of my life with him, but it wasn't, I wasn't in love with him. And um, his life was completely absorbed in stripping and stripping telegrams and anything to do with taking your clothes off. That was his life. So he, he got me a job. He, um, not stripping, but um, he got me a job. I was working for his friend, answering the phones for their stripping telegram business. And I quite liked it. It was kind of fun. I got to talk to a lot of people, met a lot of girls, met a lot of guys, and um, I did really well. They, people liked, seemed to like my voice. They like listening to this English girl on the phone. And very quickly, his business just multiplied and multiplied. And I found myself, like, making this guy a lot of money. And I was telling my ex, you know, this guy's making tons of money out of me. And um, he said, well, maybe we should do this. So I was talking to a couple of the, the, the girls, the strippers, telling them, you know, what do you think? And they said, oh, you know, Susie, that's not, that's not where the money is. That's what, just what we do in the daytime or when we when we, you know, have an evening off. But the real money is in escort services. And I said, wow, okay, tell me about it. So these girls basically told me how they made all this money every night, going out sometimes ten times a night, you know, charging a couple of hundred dollars to the agency. Then these girls were making money on top of that. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, 10, 20 calls a night, a couple of hundred dollars a call. That's some serious money there. So um, I registered myself with the San Diego Vice Department and became an escort owner of three escort services. And I left the stripping telegram business behind and I started running this business out of my little apartment in um, Mission Beach in San Diego. I went from that one-bedroom apartment to a six-bedroom house with a swimming pool and a jacuzzi and cars and money, money sitting in the safe and anything I really wanted within a year. I was 28 years old. Because we didn't tell my mum what we were doing. (laughs) Um, I want to say on the outside, people thought my life was very successful. But on the inside, I was truly dead. Um, I was empty, and there were so many voids. I would get up at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then I would drink a little bit so that I could be numb, ready to listen to the men on the phone. 
I would take some antidepressants because I was severely depressed. And then I would work all night till six in the morning and then I would go to bed. Then I'd get up at four and I'd do it all again. That was my life for more than a year. When I first moved to San Diego, I walked into a shopping mall because I didn't really know where you go to get your hair cut. It was new to me. So I walked into a, a shopping mall, saw a hair salon and said, oh, I'll go in there and get my hair cut. And now I know people don't really do that, but I did that. And I walked in and the person I got, which I know God gave me, was a British girl. And I instantly liked her because we were from the same country. And um, we would chat and we'd go outside and smoke a cigarette and then we'd come back and do a bit more on the hair. You know, she was my cup of tea. And um, for years, she did my hair, for years. So during this stage of my life, she was still around. Her name was Tracy. So Tracy, I went to see her during this, this time of being severely depressed. And I was telling her, you know, I wasn't really doing well. Um, really kind of hated my life, but loved it. You know, I had all these things I could buy, but then nothing to do with it. And she said... Um, and I noticed when I visited her this time, that something was different, you know, she had all these pictures of her boyfriend normally on her mirror, they were gone. And there were some other things I noticed was slightly different about her mannerism and the way she talked to me. So I hadn't seen her for a couple of months. I asked her, you know, what, what happened to the photos of your boyfriend? She said, oh, we split up. I said, oh, what happened? You guys have been together forever. You, you were living together. She said, well, I've been going to church and I realized living with him was not God's plan and I asked him to marry me, and he said no, so I kicked him out. I was like, what, just like that? I mean, it was really struck me that she was so strong. She seemed to have a strength that I hadn't seen. I mean, this woman was been with this guy forever. So we talked about it, and she started telling me she'd been going to this really nice church. And I said, well, yeah, you know, I go to church and then, which I don't. And then she said, well, you know, um, she said, you can, you know, come with me if you want. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that would be nice. She said, it's not like church in England. They don't have stained glass windows. They have palm trees in the back of the church. <laughs> it's like, okay, sounds great. So um, I left her salon, went home. Now, this guy and I were, you know, as I said, our, our relationship was very strange. And as we made money, and it was really me making money, he became very possessive and um, abusive. He became verbally abusive and would try to control me in everything I did, um, told me he hated me and, you know, called me names. And um, it got quite bad that we were actually sleeping. We had six bedrooms, so we had our own bedroom each. And... Um, Every morning, I would wake up with him standing over me, and he would be screaming, like demonically, over me. And, um, and I would wake up to this almost every day. So to get away from him, I often would go outside, because I knew he didn't want the neighbors to, to hear him. And I would go to the mailbox, and I would stand at the mailbox and open the mail, because he would you know, not want to be heard. And that day, I, I, I went out. It was just a few days after I'd seen Tracy. And I opened the mailbox, and there was a card in there. I didn't recognize the handwriting, and I opened it, and it was from my hairdresser, Tracy. And it said, Susie, I just wanted to follow up and invite you to church on Sunday. Here's my home phone number. Please call me. And so this guy came out. He followed me outside. He's standing at the mailbox. He's now whispering in my ear, you know, all this abusive stuff. And I was so angry and I was so fed up and I had this card in my hand and I was thinking, I'm going to show you, you know, you're Jewish, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to show you. And so I, I walked in the house. <laughs> this is so true. Exactly, take that. And I, and I walked in the house and I picked up the phone and I called Tracy right there. Now, I probably wouldn't have done that had he not come out and um, been abusive. And um, I called her and I went to church on the Sunday. Very powerful. God is so he's very powerful. Um, he gives a, a word fitly spoken, it says, you know. And I walked into that church, and I can honestly say, I was a little freaked out. You know, nice comfy chairs, carpet on the floor, plants in the front. I was like, this is not church. Not the way I know it. Oh, and there was a gold Jesus on the back wall as well, just to make me feel more comfortable. <laughs> 
I walked in and something, even though I was nervous, and this was a Sunday night, not a Sunday morning. So most of the people in that church at that time were actually believers. And I walked in and I found myself walking down and sitting in the front. Like, why am I sitting in the front? (laughs) And I sat and then people were raising their hands and worshiping God. And I just sat there and watched them. And this peace just fell on me that I had never, ever experienced. And I thought, gosh, it feels really good to just sit here right now. That was it. I was just kind of soaking it in. The pastor um, shared a message. And he shared a message about the power of prayer. And he said, if you don't know that God answers prayer, go home, get on your knees, Cry out to him and tell him what is on your heart. And I promise you, you cannot walk back through those doors next week and tell me there's no God. Whoa, I was like, that's very confident. (laughs) So I listen to the rest of the message. I go home. I'm like, well, I'll give it a shot. You know, I've got nothing to lose. And I got on my knees in my bedroom and I said, God, if you're real, then you better come and show yourself to me. And, and he did. The next morning I woke up and the man that for years had stood over me and chanted and cursed and abused me was sitting on the end of my bed weeping. Now, a stubborn heart here said, oh, that's a coincidence. It's not, it's not God. It has to be a coincidence. God surely couldn't have done that. Um, later in the week, I was walking through, I think it was Walmart, could have been Target, and um, on the book stand, there was this student, NIV, student Bible. And I walked right past it with my cart, and then I stopped, and I, I went back, and I, I looked at it, and I was like, you know, I'm going to take that, I need to figure out, I want to figure out, you know, what I know, what I do know is I can walk back in that church a week later and say that God didn't answer my prayer. So I was curious at that point. I put the Bible in my cart, and the next Sunday I called Tracy and I said, I want, I want to go back to church. So I started going to church every week. This guy was super nice and sweet to me, and something was going on. I was concerned. One... <laughs> so about a month went by. I was going to church every week on Sunday, morning and evening. But I was still answering the phone every night. So I had this conflict going on inside of me. And I could feel it. So I went forward one Sunday when they asked people to come forward for prayer. And I told them right away, you know, I I don't really need prayer. (laughs) But I know a man at home who really needs prayer. And um, that lady, she said to me, you need to go to make appointment with a pastor and get some, you know, counseling. I told her all, you know, what was wrong with this guy. And I asked her, you know, how much does that cost? She said, that's, that's free. So here was, you know, this church that was just reaching out to me, just reaching out. It was God was just using that church just to try and grab me. I was so resistant. I have to say, I was so resistant. But um, I did make an appointment. After cancelling it five times, I finally showed up. And um, the pastor that counselled me, I had no plan, of course, to tell him what I was doing because that was was irrelevant. I just needed help on what was going on with this guy. He was being really nice, but is it going to last? What does God say about marriage? You know, can I leave this marriage? It wasn't really a marriage anyway. And I, I had this whole plan and agenda for going into that appointment. And, in, and when I got in there, I sat in the chair and I said, I own an escort service. And then I was like, okay, I wasn't planning to share that. And the guy didn't even bat an eyelid. He just opened his Bible and he told me about the lust of the flesh. And then we talked about God's plan for all people. And he shared the gospel with me. I then received Christ as my saviour. I didn't really understand, even at that point, what I was doing. I knew I wanted to do it, but I didn't really understand how it was going to change me. And I got in the car and I drove home that day. And all the way home, 
It was about a 40-minute drive. I was weeping, and I was weeping uncontrollably. And by the time I got to the house, I just knew. If I walk in that house and answer the phone, I have just disobeyed God. And therefore, I can't do it. And I hadn't got a plan B. I had a mortgage, and I had a car payment. I had a grumpy husband, but I didn't have a plan B. So I walked in the house and told him. He did exactly what I thought he would do, and he flipped out. He ripped up my Bible, and he threw me out the house. He took all the money from the safe. He took my credit cards. He said, anything that came from this business, if I was going to call myself a Christian, I should not touch it. Okay? He then said, I know this is about the house. You want to take the house from me. So after several weeks of this going on, I decided to sign the house over to him. I really felt God showing me to show him this is not about the money. God has done something in me. I can't explain it. But if you think it's about the house, take the house. And I'll prove it to you by giving you the house. You can have it. He got so abusive and violent that I actually had to move out. And I I remember sitting in Chase's spare room and I was sitting on her bed. She was the only Christian I really knew, um, apart from a couple of pastors at the church. And I sat in her bed and I said, Lord, I'm not from here. I don't have my family. I don't have any friends. I lost all my friends. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. I don't have any credit cards. I don't have anything but you, Jesus. And he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And he never has. So I eventually started working at my church. How that happened, I was volunteering. It's been really neat to meet some of the pastors in this church and hear their testimonies, how God raised them up. And I was a similar story. God raised me up. I was volunteering because I really had nothing else to do. And I was sold out for Jesus. I was in church, women's Bible study. I snuck in sometimes to the men's Bible study. I, I was there all the time. Wednesday night, home fellowship, you know, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I just wanted to be in church. And I was being filled, and I was hungry, and I, I, I couldn't get the word into me fast enough. I couldn't understand God's word fast enough. Um, and finally, I, the girl that I was volunteering with on the reception, she left and went to Africa to be a missionary. And the pastor said, you know, you've been here a few months now. Would you like her job? And I said, yeah, yeah I would. I would love her job. So I started working at the church in the reception. A couple of months later, now my background is accounting, and I had a program that I used on my business that I was quite efficient in. And um, when I was working at the church, the the bookkeeper left, and the pastors were looking for a replacement. She left very without very much notice, and they were asking people, "Do you know? Does anybody know how to use this program?" Of course, it was the same program that I had used on my business. But I didn't want to tell anybody. I was like, it's not going to work here. They're not going to let me count the church's money. I mean, look at me. I was, you know, look what I was doing. There's no way. Um, so I just kept it to myself. But finally, the pastor that actually prayed with me to receive Christ, he walked right up to me and he looked me in the face and he said, Susie, are you sure you don't know how to use this program? And I knew I had to make a choice right then to tell him I, I knew. I, I'm, I, know, I know how to use this. And so I told him, and he said, oh, come with me. And that was it. I was whisked back into the finance office, and I started running basically the finance department of that church. God used that platform to send me to the mission field. I just want to say that. The people that I met in that position and um, the church members that I met from having that position, um, God used later to catapult me into the mission field. Um, And I thank him for it. So a couple of years, so now I'm going to move on to how did I end up in Africa? (laughs) So one day I'd been working at the church a few years and I was sitting in the front pew as you do on Sunday when you're on staff at a church and I was sitting right there ready to help the pastor with anything he needed and they showed a video on the famine in Sudan and it was a devastating famine, devastating. People had not eaten for three months and they were on their hands and knees crawling. And I found myself 
weeping over this video, not something I would normally do. And I was really kind of asking God, well, why am I so disturbed by this? I mean, I've seen terrible videos like that before. I went back to my office and started praying. And I said, God, I feel so helpless. I mean, I know you guys probably feel like that sometimes. Like, what can I do? I've got nothing. I've got no money. I don't have any skills. I mean, what would I do? I'm not a doctor. And um, he said, you can pray. So I started praying. And I started really praying. Like, for this country, I didn't even know where it was. I knew it was in Africa, but I was like, I don't even know where these people live. And I started really so burdened, crying out for God for these people. And falling in love with this country that I'd never even been to or met anybody from. Through that, I started doing a a prayer walk. I decided I'm going to rally people. Everybody needs to be praying. Then that prayer walk became a fundraiser. And then in six weeks from when I saw that video, we raised $60,000 for that famine in Sudan. Never done anything like that in my life. I remember walking out of that church and saying, what can I do, God? And I sent that check to the Calvary Chapel organization that was doing the um, famine relief, thinking, isn't that what everybody's doing? No, it was not what everybody else was doing. And I realized very quickly that that was not something that people always respond to that way. That was shocking to me. I sent the check and the T-shirt and photos, and the pastor called me and he said, we are looking for people with a heart for Sudan. and We want you to go to South Sudan with us. I was like, really? Now, through that whole process of fundraising, I met a whole community of South Sudanese living in San Diego that were refugees from the war. South Sudan has had 50 years of civil war. It had 20-plus years and then a 10-year peace and then another 20-plus years. So it's the longest-running civil war in Africa at, at that time. And so I had heard these stories. I was burdened, and these these men of, um, from Sudan were saying, you need to go. Go for us. We can't go. You need to go. You better go for us. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go. Never been on a mission trip. Never felt called to missions. <laughs> and I really thought those, those um, South Sudanese men and women in, in San Diego were my ministry. And that's why God had given me that burden. That's what I thought. Um, don't put God in a box because he's so much bigger than anything you can think of. (laughs) So um, I went to South Sudan and I had the greatest privilege of serving the Lord there. I remember flying in. Now, it's a war zone. And um, and, I'd never been on a mission trip and now I'm going to a war zone. And, um, you know, so there's snakes and there's scorpions and there's 120 degree heat. There's bats. I don't do bats either. And, um, and, and then the, and on top of that, you might get bombed. So I was like, okay, this sounds good. <laughs> sounds like fun. I'm not adventurous. And anybody that knows me really well knows I'm not the adventurous type. Um, so I, I obeyed. I said, God, I believe that you want me to go. My pastor blessed it, and off I went. And I remember flying on that trip in, and, and flying over South Sudan. And I remember looking out the window and going, okay, so where are the people? And where? I mean, it was just empty ground. It looked like that from the air. There were no buildings and no roads and no infrastructure at all. And then I, as we came down a bit lower, I could see little round circles and those were mud huts and little footpaths. And that was it. So we landed. We actually had to chase the cows and the goats off the airstrip, the mud airstrip, before we landed. And then we landed, and when I got out of the plane, all these naked children, just like, you know, National Geographic, just came running up to me <laughs> and grabbing, grabbing my fingers. And, but I remember, as I got off that plane, I, I turned and I told my teammate, I could live here. And she looked at me like, are you crazy? I was like, no, I really could. I had this just overwhelming peace and presence of the Lord. It wasn't an emotional attachment. I hadn't done anything yet. I hadn't even walked into the village. I just felt God's presence with me. And I knew that this was going to be a special place in my life. And it has been. So um, on that trip, I met Sebe. Um, We became really good friends, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) We met on that trip. And um, I actually, I mean, there's a great story attached to how him and I um, 
ended up getting together. But I came back to the States and I knew God was calling me to South Sudan. He was calling me back to Tonj. I just didn't know how that was going to happen. I got asked by a couple of ministries. One headhunted me down at my church and asked me to join their ministry. And I thought I was gung-ho and then at the last minute God closed the door. And I thought, gosh, what are you doing, Lord? You know, I really want to be over there. And then um, the ministry that Sebit was working with called me and asked me to go. And I'd been working with refugees in San Diego. They wanted me to work with refugees. As they wanted me to be in Kenya for a year, which was perfect because I was not ready to be in Sudan. And um, I, so I ended up going. And um, Sebit and I spent a year in Kenya together. We went through premarital counseling there. And then we got married in 2000. And um, my pastor came and did our wedding in Kenya. It was a blessing. Um, in 2000, we flew. Now, you have to understand, like, back then, you, it was exp- you know, very expensive to get in and out of a war zone. You had to have special permission to get in and out. And so while we were courting and going through premarital in Kenya, the Lord used that time to prepare us. And he actually connected us with Samaritan's Purse. I know you're probably very familiar with Samaritan's Purse. So we became very connected with their Nairobi office. And those guys funded our first... We had no money, nothing, like backpacks, that was it. And they funded our first four years of ministry in South Sudan um, just through the relationship we made with them from that first year in Kenya. It was really a, a blessing. When we first went to Sudan, we literally hitchhiked. We would, and not cars, I'm not talking cars, I'm talking airplanes. So we would go to the airport and find out who's going up to North Kenya. Because all the planes in North Kenya were going in and out of Sudan. So if we could get to Tokyo, then we could get to Sudan. And we literally hitchhiked. The first plane that took us were Russian pilots. Not a good plan. (laughs) (laughs) Too much vodka. Uh, Lord, let's just say the Lord protected us completely. That was some scary flying. But we actually saw God just literally take us from A to B with no money and land us exactly where we wanted to be. One flight, we got out 23 miles away, 120 degree heat, not, fig- not knowing how we were going to get, no cars, no vehicles. And there was a nun at the airstrip that we knew from our very first trip to Sudan. And she was there with a car and she drove us. She was there. She was leaving five minutes later. Um, and she took us to Tanj. What has God done since then? I mean, we give him the glory because I, you know, I never thought I was going to be a missionary. I never thought I was going to be a Christian, let alone a missionary. <laughs> um, you know, God has been so incredibly faithful to Sebit and I. And I, I, I would say that there's one thing that I, I can testify that Sebit and I did um, for the Lord, and that was obey him. He said, would you pick up your cross and follow me? He said that to me when I was in that pastor's office, and I said yes, and I followed him. And then he said, will you do it again and get on a plane and go to Sudan? And I said yes, and I followed him. And then he said it to you. Many of you heard Sebit's testimony. He was working the same way in Sebit's life. And together, you know, he took us, joined us. I mean, how does a girl from... I would say Essex, but I'll say England. <laughs> and a man from Sudan, and the girl's living in America, and the man's living in a refugee in Kenya. How does God bring that together and make a ministry? Only he can do it. No problem for him, that's right. Um, so we have been there since 2000. We've had our children and since then. Um, Hannah and Jed... Uh, our biological children, Hannah's 12 and Jed is um, 9. And Gummy Bear, Agum, is um, 10. And I always tell her, you know, Hannah and Jed grew in my tummy and God had you grow in my heart. Because she, she's actually Sebit's um, niece from his sister that died. And um, she, she'd been on her own, you know, since she was one. And she came to live with us when she was five. Uh, life in South Sudan, what is it like? It's tough. I'm not going to pretend. You know, a calling, God called Sebit and I into the mission field. We know it. We feel it. We hunger for it. it it's, it, you could say, well, people say, aren't you afraid to be there with your children? Aren't you, aren't you afraid of this? Aren't you afraid of that? What about the conflict that's going on right now? What about this? And there's so many reasons not to do 
the work of the Lord. And if, you know, you can't think of some, I believe Satan will give you plenty. <laughs> and Sabbath and I really had to pray through a lot of things. Pray for God's peace, pray for his presence, pray for his guidance. It doesn't really matter what happens to me. It doesn't really matter what happens to my children. What matters is I'm in his will, perfect will, and he's, he's leading. I don't know. Something might happen to my children. I have no guarantees. I have the guarantee that God is with us, that he says he will keep in perfect peace all who put their trust in him. And um, he has certainly done that. We've had, um, in, uh, when Sebet first started working there, he was working with the blind pastor, John, and they started ministering to pastors that already had churches. They didn't even have Bibles and they didn't know the word of God, but they had churches. And so he was discipling them with a blind pastor, amazing man of God, um, brother in the Lord, who's now with the Lord. And um, he, they started a school together and 13 men of God from that school, you have to understand, they've never read a Bible. They graduated from that school two years ago, 13 of them. After three and a half years, three and a half years of being away from their families, not being able to, you know, do everything that they wanted to do in their farms, not being able to be there for their churches, giving that time up for the Lord so that they could then be used um, by him in greater ways. Those men are now all over the Warwick state of South Sudan, preaching and evangelizing. I I feel like God gave us 13 sebits and sent them out, you know. And then I think about Jesus and his disciples. You know, that was his ministry. And um, interesting that we started with 50 and ended with 13. Um, But the Lord, those 13 are pure gold. They're just so refined. They're they're so um, on fire for the Lord. One of them alone has planted five churches. He's amazing. We're telling him, slow down. We can't can't keep up with you. Um, One of them, so in 2006, so during the war, you can imagine, nothing. There's nothing. No food. No school, no jobs, no prospects. People are hurting really bad. Oh, Lord, you know, it's overwhelming. Where do you start? You're the only person that's going to come in and bring hope. And is Jesus going to be enough? I mean, even we're asking, God, is it enough? It's enough. It really is enough. We would go and see people completely, miraculously healed just from praying over them. Sometimes we're not even with them. We're just praying for them. And then we hear that God has healed them. I've seen God do amazing miracles that I would not trade for anything. Really, I have. Um, In 2006, Sabbath and I always said we're never going to do medical. It's a money pit. It's going to be downward spiral of our ministry if we start anything medically. And then a sick baby showed, never say never, by the way, to God. (laughs) I've learned that the hard way, so (laughs) never say never. So I I found um, this little baby came to me uh, by the father, and she was going to die. The mother was really sick and had given birth to her the night before, and they needed a wet nurse. My little Jedediah, the little one there at the front, was about eight months old at the time, maybe a bit younger. And I was um, nursing him. Healthy, healthy boy. Beautiful, healthy baby. And here's this little sick baby. Oh, Lord, why did you bring him to me? What can I do with her? You know, I don't have anything. Um, Talk about feeling helpless in a situation. But I knew I could pray. And as I was praying, God said, I want you to feed her. I was like, are you sure about that? I asked him, like, how is that going to work with the people? Are they going to be okay with that? And the Lord used that, really. The baby was with the mother in a hospital um, a little way from us. So somebody would come on a bike every day and collect milk from me and take it to that baby. And so many people came. They wanted to see, is the milk blue? What's going to happen to the baby? You know? They was, they were, they'd heard this story, like this Khawaja, which is a white woman, is feeding this baby. They were curious. Well, the baby um, survived for two weeks. And the mother, on the day that the, the hospital told us she was going to die, we called a prayer v- meeting for her. And most of the people had never met her. We cried out, tears of crying out and pleading, God, do something. And she was miraculously healed and went home the same day. 
And she came to me. She said, Susie, thank you. Because if you hadn't kept my baby alive, I would never have met her. So she called the baby Susie. About a week later, the baby came very sick to me and actually died in my arms. It was very hard. Ministry sometimes is very hard. It doesn't always go the way I would like it to go. Through that baby's death, the mother came to know Jesus. But more than that, the Lord showed us something. I had been very resistant to doing anything medically for the community. And I saw that Sebet and I were a city on a hill. We were a light in the darkness. I wanted to put myself under a bushel, really, at that time, and say, no, God, that's too much. And God was saying, no, I want you to be out there, and I, I want to use you, but I'm not a medical person. Sebet's not a... What do you... You know, that's crazy, right? Um, and he said, yeah, I want to use you. And so, again, we were asked to obey, and we did, and we brought a, a Kenyan doctor in, and... Um, we were only going to see a few patients. That's it. And then within about a few hours, I can't even say days, we were seeing about 100 people a day. And it can, has continued like that. Our clinic um, has seen, sees about 25,000 people every year. Um, every single one of those patients are prayed for, given the gospel, and counseled if they... Would, uh, agreeing to it. They're definitely hearing the gospel, all of them, whether they want it or not. We, we do it while they're waiting in line. Um, many have come to know the Lord. But more importantly, our community health, where we've given jobs, we've trained up, there's no training or school in South Sudan. We've trained up um, many school leavers. Uh, one is now in medical school full time. Um, we've had, I mean, South Sudan has the highest infant mortality, the highest maternal mortality in the world, South Sudan. Uh, we have had women come into our clinic with an obstructed labor. I myself had an obstructed labor, and I, I thank God for it because I was at home. I had a, a baby at home, and it was obstructed labor. And I think God gave me that so I could understand what these women go through. It was scary. Um, they don't have cesarean options there. And so many times we are on our knees asking God for a solution and for a miracle. And he delivers the miracle and the baby. <laughs> um, yes, I want to say to be the salt of the earth. Gosh, I don't ever want to lose my flavor. Um, I don't want to be trampled underfoot by men. I want to be that shining light for the Lord. I want to be whatever he wants me to be. If he needs me to be a doctor, I'll be a doctor. If he needs me to be whatever it is, God, you do it. Um, we have, um, you know, today have two clinics in South Sudan. We have a community health evangelism program that goes out to um, hundreds of people all over um, the Tonj area where we live. Um, we have seven churches. We have 13 graduated pastors. I'm not boasting when I say this. It's for God's glory. God has done a miracle with two people that really had nothing, really nothing but um, a willing heart. Um, I want to read to you the verse that the Lord um, gave me, and then we're going to watch a little clip uh, of... Well, you saw a video on Sunday, I know, of uh, how we kind of got started. It was more like a documentary. This is really just going to be very fast photos after photos and look at them because this that's going to be what God is doing now today this is the testimony um, of what the Lord is doing when I sat in that church that day he said to me by this we know love because he laid down his life for us we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And that is the name of our ministry, in deed and truth. It comes from this verse. We didn't want to just go in with the gospel. It is enough. We know that Jesus' ministry on earth 
was to love people with compassion, compassionate heart. God, always allow me to have that compassion for your people. These are his people. He's asked me to lay my life down for them. He's asked me to go and give up many things in the name of Jesus for these people who I don't even know. Just like he gave up his life for me. Um, It doesn't even compare to the suffering that he went through, the suffering that I sometimes deal with. doesn't even compare. Um, I just want to say, Seba and I have had an amazing week with this church. I've heard so many stories and testimonies of people in this church. I'm so excited to be having this church part of what we're doing in South Sudan. I'm excited that some of you might come, um, that Russ is going to come, <laughs> despite the snake. We're going to get rid of all the snakes. Um, I want to finish with this verse, then we're going to watch a clip. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Amen. It's a very rare moment that I find myself speechless. I think I speak for many people, not only tonight, but uh, the whole week, as you folks let the Lord work through you and speak to us. Uh, My heart was burning. We want to imitate you. We want to not try to drum up some adventure, but we want to do what you did, just pick up our crosses and follow to give him more to trust him in more profound ways I was thinking of the scripture Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly far above all that we could ask or think that verse says go ahead and ask really big God can do way much more. Well, I can think way big. Well, he can think way bigger. Amen. I just want to tell you, as I was thinking about that, as you were inspiring us, that I felt like the Lord wants you to both know that Ephesians 3.20 isn't finished yet for your, you and your ministry and your wonderful family. Amen. He's got some things in store even beyond this point. And so, you know, what's amazing is is that there's never been any talk about support or projects. Not one word. You know, that's how they they roll. You know, that's who they are. And uh, I was thinking, we've been blessed. We've been blessed not, not to splurge it all upon ourselves. And I mentioned to you all that we're looking for a building because we, we've outgrown this place and our leases was up. We have an extension on that. But afterwards, we're really settling into the idea of just leasing a space as economically as possible so that we don't saddle ourselves with this gigantic mortgage so that we have funds freed up so that we can make a difference in the world. Amen? So. What do we need a building for? We have buildings. We'll lease a building. So we're able to take trips and we're able to have you come over here. We're able to send you the support that you need to partner with you. We, our hearts are stirred. And for many, many years, this church has prayed, God, this is a big planet and there's a lot of need. We could just spin the globe and go like that. I mean, and it, it would work, right? But we want you to uh, put it on our hearts. God, you, you have specific people and places for us, Calvary the Rock, to partner with. 
show us. Don't let us just a shot in the dark. Well, we need to get busy. So just pick a place, you know. We didn't want to do that. And so then when we went on the website after praying, we found you. And then uh, or we wanted to support you guys because we, we read about it and heard testimonies. And so Jim flew down to San Diego and bought, bought these guys lunch and just wanted to be in their presence and feel it out in the Holy Spirit. And he came back and he goes, two thumbs up. <laughs> and boy, uh, are we ever glad that the Lord led us together. So uh, we're, we're partnering with you, we have for three years, but uh, we're going to increase our support, and we're going to. Um, if you'd like to give, and you want to, just Kuj is very easy. K U J in the memo of your giving uh, that will go in the offering that we've already prepared, and and we'll add on top of that uh, just to offset uh, some of the things that they need uh, going back to Tonj. Um, and so we're going to be ongoing every month supporting them. And then I believe that pretty soon we're going to plan a trip and we'll, we'll, we'll keep you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Were you serious about the snakes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, boy, we're excited. And um, so this is your real last official time with us. Uh, we would like you to come up here. We'll, we'll welcome you back up here, and then we want to pray over you, but we want to give you a couple items. So come on up, your whole family. Church. Where do we go? Let's go over there so everybody can see you guys. And you might need a microphone, I'm not sure. So just in case. Jed, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been around you enough to know alright something about the hair alright well we didn't want you guys to go without a few mementos first of all Dr. yeah <laughs> if you missed out they, all they do is when they get to America they drink straight Dr. Pepper the whole time so there, yes. Oh, and a Dr. Pepper hat and Dr. Pepper candies. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Look how happy. Somebody Here. gave us that uh, just before the service. Oh, <laughs> check that out. Well, we've got more. We've got bags. Uh, Sabet, this is for you. All right. Oh, my. And Susie, right? You've got official rock. Uh, t-shirts for softball awesome. that we expect you to represent over in South Sudan. All right? And all kinds Thank of you. little gifts and all kinds of girl stuff for your wife. Thank and uh, this is for Barb, help me. Hannah. Oh, Hannah, there you go. It's a lot, lot of stuff to, to help keep you busy on airplanes. All right? Gumi. Yes. You're welcome. Jed, what do you think this is? There's no Dr. Pepper in there, don't worry. But there's lots to, do, lots to keep you busy here, so hold that. All right. There's bracelet making kits and uh, books and cutouts. And, uh, you know, we flew from Japan with three kids back and forth for four years. And I should say, my wife flew with three kids. Uh, and so she knows, uh, you know, firsthand experience about how keeping uh, kids busy. Lots of cool things in those bags. And oh, we just want you to be blessed. Thank you. Thank you. In one of those bags, let me see. Is this the one, Barb? The little... Yes, it's in that little bag. Oh. That's how we do it in America. Okay, that little bag there. It's a little rock in the shape of a heart. 
that says on it. It's like giving birth. An obstructed labor. I could perform a cesarean very easily. Just on the back. Just the Problems here. Jed. <laughs> okay, give it, give it to us. No, Jed, good too. Yeah, Jed. Yeah, good. I just need to get the rock. Ow. While Pastor Ross doing that, I just wanted to say we felt. <laughs> Go ahead. You got about five minutes. <laughs> Uh, you can tell I'm a pastor. I let him do the work and I just steal the mic. No, I, really, sincerely, we are so blessed. We, we've been so blessed by you. <coughs> and, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> it came out. <laughs> it's in the shape of a heart and it says, The Lord is my rock, Psalm 18.2. So we didn't want to make it any bigger because we know you're flying on airplanes, <laughs> you know. Thank so you. just something to remember us. Thank by. you so much. And a Thank few you. other things in there, you'll be blessed here. So I was saying, we're, we, we are so blessed by you guys. Uh, the whole week, uh, we didn't just hang with Pastor Ross alone, but with so many of you here in the church families, and we get to know them, know their heart uh, for the Lord, for the gospel, and we get to spend fun time uh, from everything that you could imagine, and we're so blessed by that. <laughs> one, um, I'm not lying when I'm saying uh, this is one of the fewest times that it's been that fun for us as a family. Awesome. Every time we come here, it's work for us because we have to connect with our uh, churches and we have to like travel and uh, it becomes really hectic and uh, you know we we're we're homeschooling on the go you know mm. and 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 all that and the kids now they love Santa Rosa because they've been awesome. they've been off for a whole week so they <laughs> Awesome. They really lo- love that. So right. we, we really want to say thank you so much from all our heart. Just your love, your blessings, and, and, and just the kindness and compassion that you've shown to us as a family. It really renewed our love to the Lord, renewed our commitment to the things that God has called us to do. Thank you so much. Amen. 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 Great. You can keep that. Why don't I... Uh, Few of the pastors come on up and we'll pray over this delightful family, our new best friends in South Sudan. Come on up here. Why don't we stand together? Now, gracious, loving, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You brought the Kuj family to us. Thank you, Lord, that we get the privilege of just being their friends and partnering with them to support them in the work that you've called them to do in in that uh, great land deep in the heart of Africa. We just thank you, Lord, for the inspiration and all the truths that we learned and the inspiration to to follow, Lord, in that kind of commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for this family. We pray that you would continue to raise the support that they need as they itinerate on their furlough. We pray for a safe journey. We know that the the war is escalating, the civil war that's begun again. We pray for safety. Lord, we we just thank you that you're a good God. And the safest place to be is in the center of your will. So we thank you, God, that these are folks that know that where that will is and are not afraid to obey it. And so we commit them to your care. We ask for your guardian angels to surround them, your Holy Spirit to fill them, the grace of God to protect them and overshadow them uh, all the days of the life that you've called them to serve you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. 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 Well, God bless you guys. Get over here. Oh. Love you guys. What's that called?
a coochie cuddle. Also, Jedediah. Oh, love you guys. Love you guys. You're choking me. You're choking me. It's called the Heimlich. Kid, don't mess with me. I'll throw you down. All right, we got a closing song, I believe. Anybody in the mood to worship the Lord? All right, with all of our hearts, a closing song, all right? All right. Nick, lead away, all right? You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.